You're listening to the Forefront Church Sermon Podcast. Forefront Church is a progressive Christian community more interested in asking good questions than having all the right answers. Thanks for listening. Sunday. Yeah, no, I'm not confused. I'm not confused. I know that last week was Easter, but I also know that for me, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday because we come together to celebrate the good news that Jesus is alive. So, happy Resurrection Sunday, y'all. All right, all right, all right. We are starting a new series today, Why Communion and the Cross. And when we got together a few months ago to talk about series planning, we thought that it was very important to talk about communion because we take it here every week at Forefront and we have congregants from various backgrounds. So some of you may have questions about why we take communion and, and what it represents. So. Today, um, I will focus on Passover and the Last Supper, which turned out to be the First Communion. To give you some background, um, the first five books in the Hebrew Bible are the same as the Torah, or as it's called, Pentateuch. It's the five books of Moses. And um, these scriptures recount stories explaining the, their understanding of events that happened. Um, there's the creation of the world, Israel's ancestry, the origins of the Jewish people, that's Genesis. Uh, the escape of the Israelites from captivity in Egypt, their struggles to reach the promised land, which is Exodus. The laying down of the law, or what I like to refer to as the book of rules and regulations, Leviticus. More details of the trials and tribulations of the wandering, disobedient Israelites and how they finally take possession of the promised land, which is Numbers. And then we come to Deuteronomy, which is more retelling of history reminders of the rules and regulations, and finally, words of comfort, which reminds me of the sermons that my mom would give before and after applying disciplinary action <laughs> slash whoopings. <laughs> she could never just whip us and just like let us go. She had to give us the whole explanation. You know, I was like, just get it over with, just do it. Just do it so I can just go on and do something else crazy. You know, but my mom was raised, you know, she, she got beatings or spankings. My mom didn't beat me. Don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. She got them, and, and she didn't even understand why she was being punished sometimes, right? And so those punishments that she got were really retaliatory. Like somebody was angry about something, so they took it out on her. And she wanted to make sure she never 
punished us in a way that was retaliatory. She wanted us to have to be redeemed, to have redemption, and to always know that we were loved and cared for, right? I could give a whole sermon about my mom's sermonettes. We <laughs> laugh about these moments at different times because it was hilarious sometimes and just, you know, I never doubted what my mom was trying to do. And, uh, you know, dad, he would just get to it. But the look on his face was like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. He didn't have to give us any kind of sermon or anything like that. But again, I digress. That's a whole other sermon I can give at a later date. Mom, dad, I love you. I know you love me. Don't worry. All right. Um, but getting back to this, every year people honoring the history of the Jewish faith celebrate Passover. Um, uh, which is also called Pesach, right? This tradition slash religious holiday commemorates the Israelites' escape from slavery in Egypt. It's one, and it's a week-long festival, um, and usually on the first or second day of that festival, they have a meal together, which is called a Seder. And these celebrations are in recognition of the night that the Spirit of God passed over their houses and spared their firstborn. Now, the first Passover was the last of 10 plagues inflicted upon the Egypt, Egyptians who refused to let my people go. You remember that song? When Israel was in Egypt land, let my people go. Go down, Moses, way down in Egypt land. Tell old Pharaoh, let my people go. Exactly, exactly. And how many of you, uh, I know that, that some of you, this might be a little bit old now, but how many of you remember the Prince of Egypt? Okay, yeah, right? you guys are, you know, Disney, so they still play it, right? <laughs> the Prince of Egypt, you know, I, it, was, it was a fantastic Disney movie. It was fantastic. And then, you know, of course you had Whitney and Mariah doing a duet together. There will be miracles, right? Can't beat that. I loved that whole story, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Our little karaoke kids here. <laughs> and then uh, I'll take it back even further. Anybody remember the Yul Brenner, Charlton Heston, the Ten Commandments, right? Now that movie was made way before I was born, okay? But they played it every Easter, right? It was fantastic. And I remember watching it as a kid. I was like, this movie has everything. <laughs> Usually my parents wouldn't let me watch something with these kind of subject matters. But I got to watch it, you know. Um, and I just, I just was fascinated by it. And I still am fascinated by it. There's so much that happens in this, in this um, book of the Bible, right? Um, the Pharaoh's fear that the Jews would uh, outnumber the Egyptians, you know, sound familiar? Like the original replacement theory people, right? So out of that fear, he orders that the Israelite sons, the firstborn, the newborns, be killed, right? And then Moses' mom puts Moses in the basket, sends him down the river, uh, the Pharaoh's sister just happens to find Moses and raises Moses in the palace as an Egyptian. Then Moses finds out he's an Egyptian. 
He ends up killing an Egyptian in defense of an Israelite. He runs off and, you know, and flees the country. And then, you know, God appears to him in a burning bush and sends him back, says, you got to go back and free my people, right? Yada, yada, yada. And then, um, you know, uh, then uh, there he goes and he tells his friend, now who's the new Pharaoh, you know, this is what God has said and, you know, he ain't hearing it, so then there's these plagues that happen, and let me tell you, Pharaoh was a very stubborn man, because like after the first couple of things, I'm like, well, maybe there's something, you know, about this. Maybe I should just cut my losses and go, right? But it took 10 plagues. It took this last plague to finally make him, convince him to let them go, and even then, he chased after them as they are trying to go away. He's going to kill them all. The Red Sea's part. The Israelites walk through on dry land, and then it closes on the Egyptian army, and they're saved, right? And that's just the half of the story, right? That's just the first half of the story. So much going on. In Exodus 12, God gave detailed instructions on how to, uh, to uh, protect the Israelites from that final plague. Um, he tells them in verse 25 through 28 what to do in remembrance of them being spared. So Exodus 12, 25 through 28 says, when you enter the land that was that the Lord, uh, when you enter the land that the Lord will give you as he promised, observe this ceremony. And when your children ask you, what does a ceremony mean to you? Then tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Then the people bowed down and worshipped. The Israelites did just what the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. Now, needless to say, there's a lot to unpack in these stories, but I'm sure you would appreciate getting out of here before eight o'clock tonight. So I'm just going to, you know, skip over some of this stuff. We'll talk about that at another time. Um, all I can say is, you know, I'm glad that God chilled out a little bit in the New Testament because I don't know how any of us could live up to these rules that were in the Old Testament. Thank you, God. So during, you fast forward to the time of Jesus, and during the Passover festival in the days and hours before that were leading up to Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus and his disciples had Seder together. Then Jesus dropped the bomb that he was going to be killed, right? What a buzzkill for a dinner <laughs> celebration. And then last Sunday, Reverend Benita talked about who Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. But today, I'm going to talk about who was at the table at the Last Supper. The people at the table, disciples who had walked with Jesus throughout his three years of ministry, who had watched him perform miracles, listened to countless hours of parables and, and messages, and dreamt about the kingdom to come, they had exclusive access to Jesus. They had exclusive access to Jesus, yet when he gave the first communion during the Last Supper, they had no clue what he was talking about. 
They didn't know why it was happening. They didn't understand any of it and struggled with doubts, fears, insecurities, deception, <laughs> character flaws. I mean, let's take a look at the people that were at the table. Let's start with Judas Iscariot. The very person who had already accepted money to turn Jesus into the Romans. And Jesus knew what he was going to do. Yet Jesus invited Judas to the table and allowed Judas to eat. After Jesus spoke about his death and resurrection, some of the disciples, in their fervor to prove uh, that they were not going to be the one to betray him, started arguing about who was going to be the greatest, right? Remember that time I walked in the water? I don't remember that time. I remember when you fell through the water because you didn't know what you, right? You know, well, I met him first. Oh, but he saved the best for last, you know, right? Don't we do this as Christians still today? We pit denomination against denomination. We holier than thou ourselves into separate corners. Is it wrong that I take comfort in the moments when the disciples show their behinds and act like us, right? It gives me a little bit of hope because even with their shortcomings, they still were invited to the table and allowed to eat. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus was praying in agony for God to spare him from what was about to happen, Peter James and even John the Beloved fell asleep while Jesus prayed twice. Yet, they were invited to the table and allowed to eat. After Jesus was crucified, Peter denied even knowing Jesus and even cursed to prove that he was not a follower. Something Jesus predicted while still allowing Peter to eat. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, Peter, Judas the Greater, known as that because he wasn't the Judas that betrayed Christ, right? Simon and both of the Jameses all hid while Jesus was on that cross. John the Beloved was the only one of the officially recognized 12 disciples that stayed and witnessed the crucifixion. And these people continued to hide after Jesus was taken down off the cross, and it was only the unnamed or unrecognized disciples, these women that loved Jesus, that prepared the body, that visited the tomb, right? And it was those courageous witnesses of the resurrection that were the first to share the good news. These, while these ten named disciples were still hiding. And yet, yet, those disciples were all invited to the table. Now, I know women were not specifically mentioned in the Last Supper scriptures, but given the history of Pesach and those seders, which are typically, typically family-driven, women and children were probably present. Jesus always had women around him, right? 
They were part of Jesus' ministry, even though they were sometimes left out of the word by these European men who got together and decided what was going to be in the scriptures, but that's a whole other thing, all right? <laughs> also, given the fact that Jesus taught and associated with women throughout his ministry, and they were likely there, and again, they were the first apostles. Y'all, they were the first apostles, so they had to have drunk the Kool-Aid. Come on, <laughs> all right? So let's continue with this list of participants. We have Judas the Greater, known as such, again, because he's not the one that betrayed Jesus. After Jesus' resurrection, when he spent time with the disciples, Judas asked him, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? So even after being invited to the table and eating, Judas the greater still had questions. Thomas, who later refused to believe that Jesus had risen, even though he had prophesied it, told Mary and the other witnesses of the resurrection that he would only believe if he saw the wounds himself. Even after eating, Judas had doubts. Now Jesus knew what the people at the table had done, were doing, were about to do. None of this was a surprise to Jesus. Still, he welcomed them. Still, he loved them. Still, he chose them. So if those flawed people were welcome at the first communion, why should we be, why should we let others tell us and put stipulations on who can be at communion now? All of the disciples failed Jesus in some way, yet all were included and all except Judas Iscariot went on to do great things in spite of their mistakes. You see, being a follower of Christ does not mean we will be perfect. It does not mean we will have all the answers, and it does not mean that, that we will be fear, free of doubts and fears and questions. I mean, it doesn't mean we won't have moments of pettiness and pride and jealousy. It means we are human. We are humans that are just trying to live life in a more equitable way. And that when we fail, we apologize and we try to do better next time. I think about Judas Iscariot a lot. What would have happened if instead of killing himself, he had repented? Could Judas have been redeemed? What a testimony that would have been. The irony is not lost on me that the Pesach Seder was in remembrance of a chosen few being spared from death. And the Last Supper was in remembrance of the one who died so that we all could live, so that we were all would all know that we are all loved and worthy of salvation. Now, how many of you have church trauma about ransom theology? Anybody have that, right? Now, let me, let me be clear. Did that sound like Obama? Let me be clear, all right? <laughs> I do not ascribe to that theology, and neither, neither does Forefront. We believe that Jesus died for us, yes. 
but it's not about retribution, punishment, or guilt. It's all about love. Now, we've said this before, and we'll continue to say this as long as there's a chance that anybody here hasn't heard it before. Jesus did not die to change God's mind about us. Jesus died so that we could change our minds about God. Jesus died and was resurrected. So God is not a vengeful entity just posed to smite us for being what God made us to be. God is love. And God provided that love by humbling themselves and experiencing the pain and tribulations that we humans face every day. The love note that God sent us says we are worthy and accepted. The guilt, shame culture has eroded the true intent of communion. I used to be so overwhelmed with guilt and shame when I took communion that I couldn't even remember the love that was there. I just felt so unworthy of love, and it defeated the whole purpose. For years, I struggled with thoughts of, of being a wretch and thinking that I deserved the bad things that happened to me because I had done something wrong. I groveled and pleaded for God to love me, to forgive me. And for many years, I felt so unworthy and lost. A few weeks ago, I was hanging out with Jonathan Williams, that's our founding pastor, and we started talking about this sermon, um, as we often do, and in the true J-Dubs fashion, he gave me a few nuggets to share. When I talked about this feeling of being lost and found, he just said, you're found because you exist. That's some Jedi stuff there, right? <laughs> that is so, uh, I think, therefore, I am stuff, right? You are found because you exist. God created you. God knows you. God loves you. And that's all you need to know. How many of you are parents? How many of you are parents? All right. And then now, how many of you want the best for your children? I better not see one hand go down. <laughs> All right? <laughs> now, we may not see eye to eye with our kids, or we might have different ideas of what is best for them. We're usually right. Um, <laughs> but when it comes down to the wire, we will move heaven and earth to help them, even when they've done something that we've advised them not to do and are and it blows up in their face. A true parent who loves with the agape love that God has for us does not take joy in their children's pain. We don't provide for them just so they could be beholden to us. Our love is not transactional. Now, we would like to have a thank you every now and then, but it's not transactional. We do it because we love them and we want them to have the best. So when I give my daughter something or do something for her, I want her to enjoy it, for her life to be better because of it. And that brings me to another nugget that Jonathan shared. A great analogy for the gift of salvation. He said, 
your mom gave you a piece of candy. Stop letting others tell you you can't eat it. All right? You tell them, my mama gave it to me, right? Yes, my siblings. After years of telling myself I was unworthy, I decided to accept the gift that God gave me with awe and gratitude. So when I say Jesus died for us, that is not a signal for guilt and shame. It's a message that the love God has for us is bigger than anything we face in life. Now I look at Jesus' death for me the same way that I look at Martin Luther King Jr.'s death for me. I don't feel guilty. I feel loved and grateful. And it motivates me to stand up for others, to share that love when I see someone else struggling or to celebrate when I see someone else being blessed by God. Communion is a celebration of love, the love that God has for us all. So I invite you all to say thank you and eat that piece of candy that your mom gave you with joy and gratitude. We're going to do something different today for communion this Sunday. Reverend Vanita and Reverend Josh are going to be up here and as you come up forward to take communion. And then I ask that you hold on to it until you get to your seat. And then I will read the passage from the Bible and we will eat and drink together with gratitude. Thanks for listening to the Forefront Sermon Podcast. To learn more about Forefront and how we're ushering in the next 500 years of Christianity, visit ForefrontChurch.com.